So uh, today we are welcoming back a, a frequent guest, our resident expert, all things COVID. He is uh, the University of North Carolina, or is that UNC Charlotte with me? And he's the Carol Grotness Belk Distinguished Professor of Bioinformatics and Genomics. And we are really excited to welcome back to the show, Dr. Daniel Janice. So thank you for joining us again, Dan. We're excited to have you as we are continuing to navigate all of this changing world of COVID. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, we reached out to you right away of just, hey, there's this new variant out there. And so we wanted to kind of uh, pick your brain a little bit of what is the Omicron variant? I know there's been other variants that have emerged, some that emerged that there was nothing about it and others like Delta. But what is it about this one that raised concerns that, you know, the WHO classified it as something special? I can't remember their categorization, but something, a variant of concern. So what does that, what does that mean? Can you, what, what can you tell us? What's interesting about Omicron is it contains 60 mutations with respect to Wuhan virus that emerged late 2019. And Delta contains 46. Um, and, and what was interesting about Alpha through Delta is that um, you could see them in, in a lineage, in a you know, nested set of mutations building, and each one was you know, incrementally more efficient than the other. Um, what's different about Omicron is we don't know where it came from and it's not really in those lineages. And of those 60 mutations, 37 of them are in the spike protein, which is the protein that the virus uses to interact with human cells. So there's a lot of open questions with respect to those, especially those 37 mutations in the spike protein. So, like, what what kinds of questions? I mean, what is it that when you saw this and your team and other teams around the world? I mean, what what kinds of things just popped in your head right away of what what you needed to study or questions you wanted to answer? The main thing is like, what do those mutations do to the conformation of the virus with respect to um, the antibodies that your body produces after vaccination and or after infection and in our early computational predictions, we predict that the antibodies produced by vaccination will be much less efficient in their ability to neutralize Omicron. Neat. <laughs> um, exactly what we want to hear. <laughs> we've already seen this, you know, with with Delta, hence the you know the breakthrough infections, um, and we it's so it's it's. It's more of the same. I mean, we expect more breakthrough infection. Um, we don't know that much about transmissibility yet. What's interesting about Omicron is one of the key mutations that allowed Delta to be so much more transmissible and outcompete previous variants is also in Omicron, but it's in a little bit different. It's in the same position, but a little bit different um, amino acid change. So. It remains to be seen what that means. Uh, Early data, very early data out of South Africa where this has been going on since mid-November shows that Omicron is starting to outcompete Delta. But it's so early that epidemiological data will take some time to to come in in numbers. Is there any indication yet of how how virulent it is? How dangerous it is? Uh, The... The South African doctors are saying it's in the vaccinated, 
you know, they are seeing breakthrough infections, but they're mild cases, just like, you know, Delta, uh, you know, sort of summer cold, uh, so to speak. And hospitalizations, that data even lags, you know, even more. But hospitalizations are not yet up. For the unvaccinated, it could be much more severe. We just we just don't know. Do you see that as the uh, the eventual trajectory of, of COVID in general? Is it going to go the way of becoming more transmissible but less deadly so it just kind of settles in our population? Some people think that's the case. And, and it's hard to predict how many more variants there are since this one was not incremental, so to speak, on the others in terms of its evolution. Uh, there might be a lot more space, uh, you know, of, available for COVID to vary. And the, the problem is, is that we have the tools, we have, you know, at least in the in the developed world, anybody who wants a vaccination can, or two or three can get one. And um, people are not accepting it. So that leaves a pocket of people that Delta or Omicron in this case can use to infect and replicate itself and produce new variants. And so that's, that's the situation we really find ourselves in. If I, if I may, I'm just curious. I, it was something I heard the other day on a, on someone else was speaking about this. And so I'm curious, um, the first SARS that was detected, you know, it, it spread, but not wildly around the world like this. Right. And I know we talked in our original episode, we had you on the distinctions here between SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2. But one of the things I think that the um, person said, and I, I, can, I can't remember the name right now, but what he said was is that when a virus is more deadly, what, that may be one reason why it doesn't spread so much is because, or if it acts very quickly and kills the host quickly, that doesn't have the opportunity to spread like one that is not as deadly. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about SARS-CoV, uh, some people say SARS-CoV-1 to distinguish it from SARS-CoV-2, which we're experiencing now. Uh, right. There was only about 800 cases and, uh, you know, it was much more deadly, but spread less efficiently than SARS-CoV-2. And that's one of the things, one of the harbingers of Delta is that it um, is outcompeting other viruses because when it infects you, it's replicating itself so much faster and it's getting out faster and it's not causing symptoms as it's getting out of people, as people are shedding it. And so people are even walking around more uh, and spreading it more often. It's making so many more copies of it than, than its predecessors, too. Okay. And so that's, that's what makes this one just SARS-CoV-2 in general from the very beginning. There's one of the reasons why it spread so quickly is because we don't know we have it. Isn't that right? I mean, if we go back to the ever, ever more with variants. I mean, that's that was okay, and now that's even more. That was how Delta became so successful. Is it was spreading? Well, SARS-CoV-2 was spreading asymptomatically. Delta ramped it up. So um, another question we have for you um, is, you know, if if Omicron does indeed show to be a milder variant of the virus, you know, with less risk. Um, someone was curious or, you know, we, we reached out to listeners and um, what they were curious about is that if that is the case, um, does it make sense for it to spread throughout the world largely unchecked? Like just this is kind of the whole some, you know, as you said, that there there are a pocket of the population, especially in the U.S. and the develop in the, the world where we have easy access to, to vaccines where people do not want to get it for whatever reason, uh, the vaccination. And so is it 
some have said, oh, we should just let it go unchecked. And so I'm just curious, is there? Yeah, that was tried in Sweden early on. Um, And conditions were somewhat different there. They have a lot of people who live in their own house by themselves and things like that. But it was a, a regretted decision because it was terrible for the for the elderly you know um you can have most of the population get a cold but the people that are vulnerable the elderly the immunocompromised people with other underlying conditions you're you're subjecting them to you know to a, a deadly disease in their case and so that was but so those of us who can get vaccinated it's good to do that so that we slow the the potential risk to others who are unable to get vaccinated I mean, that's the whole point of vaccines in anyway Right is hmm. there are those who are unable to get vaccinated for whatever reason, you know, medically, um, in any kind of vaccine, and so they rely on those of us who can get vaccinated to do it, so that they can. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting choice in medicine, in that you're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting those around you, and that that's probably why you know the argument's hard to swallow for a lot of people. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if. If it came naturally to care about your neighbor, then every religion in the world wouldn't have to make it their number one rule. It would just, they would just do it. But it turns out it's really hard to convince people to think about other people's well-being. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it seems like we are, um, it seems like we're getting uh, more variants. Like, Like we're just, we're just working up through delta i know out here they're they're still talking about this delta wave we've just hit the highest number in our in our um, county in the delta wave and now we're talking about another variant um is there an accelerating impact in in this and is that gonna are we gonna see more more quickly or uh is, is this going to make it harder to end this waking nightmare we just don't know and the big surprise of Omicron was it it is so different looking most of its mutations are not shared by Delta and so uh, nor any other coronavirus um, such that it really made us wonder several things about where it came from and it's it's such a surprise I can't answer your question Uh, you know maybe a month ago I would have said something you know about the pace of variants, but this really throws a monkey wrench in all that. You know? Can you can you talk a little bit more about about that? Like how how do we get something that is so far out in left field that doesn't that like a long lost cousin that we didn't? Yeah, so there we, is it's definitely SARS CoV two. Okay, so it's not a sure. it's not a new virus. Um, there are several speculations um, in it. I'll just preface this by saying there's there's no data for any of these that I've seen. I'd like to see some data, but much like Alpha, which was first called the UK variant, the speculation there was that an immune-compromised person had been affected with SARS-CoV-2 and the infection sustained itself in their body and was not fought against by their body and therefore um, SARS-CoV-2 got could vary within the person. Um, I heard the metaphor the other day um, that situations like an evolutionary dr- gym, <laughs> where in which SARS-CoV-2 can try out, get stronger, and try out new tricks. So, uh, and then it emerged from 
this hypothetical person. And then there was not much speculation after that for, for, for Alpha. And we saw the other variants becoming just, you know, incrementally better Alpha, Beta, Gamma, you know, uh, Delta. The interesting thing about Omicron is that it is not connected to any of these lineages evolutionarily um, deep, you know, very deep in the early emergence of SARS-CoV-2. We can tell it's SARS-CoV-2. And there, it, that brought up other speculations that SARS-CoV-2 from people went into an animal, animal population, used them as this you know, metaphorical evolutionary gym, and then reemerged into people. And this is not far-fetched. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the Netherlands, for example, uh, and in Denmark infected from humans uh, farmed minks uh, using the fur trade and came back out to infect people. Um, we know in the American Midwest that SARS-CoV-2 is somehow in white-tailed deer. Um, they're not farmed, they're wild, um, but um, they're friendly and, you know, <laughs> and, and accustomed to people, especially in the American suburbs. So that is still remains to be seen, any connections there, any evolutionary connections. And the third, which I think is more of a, you could say it's a third problem or kind of an overarching problem, which there's some debate in the surveillance community, is that we thought we were doing a great job, you know, sequencing the heck out of uh, SARS-CoV-2 cases, but maybe we're just not doing a very good job and this thing was under the radar. It was first identified in Botswana in a AIDS lab, but then identified in mass in South Africa. But then in, once people had the sequence to key on, um, in the Netherlands, they, they found a, a bunch of cases in travelers returning to Northern Europe from South Africa. But then they went back into their un, yet to be sequenced samples and they found they had early November or mid-November cases. So as we go back, we might find more about this. And we just wrote a paper, it should be out soon, where we review that there are many cases, many countries in the world where even though we're doing a tremendous job in uh, sequencing cases, you can do a back-of-the-envelope calculation that shows we're not doing enough to catch every variant. And so I think this latter scenario of just under-surveying, and it would be just a Herculean task to survey everything, but under-surveying is going to produce these things. And that could account for the animal reemergence case and it can account for the, the immunocompromised case. So under-surveying is, a, I think, a blanket explanation. Yeah, I've heard that, that uh, those white-tailed deer have it in such large numbers in the places where they were testing it. It was like 75% or something I read and that it doesn't, it doesn't kill them. And so it's like, it's like a little, a little playground for them. And if it, if it comes back, when I saw that article, article pop up, that was the first time in the past two years I felt legitimately hopeless. It was like, hmm. well, it doesn't matter how much we vaccinate. If the white tailed deer population, which is all over my garden is, uh, is going to be carriers, then what hope do we have? <sighs> do you want to address that question, Dan, or do we just... I mean, you, um, you don't have it, to. Yeah, it's speculation. <laughs> there's no hope to be, if there's no hope to be had, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's speculation. When it was discovered in white-tailed deer, nobody was talking about Omicron. So um, I don't know if there's a real connection there. There's a there's a danger there always. Yeah. So someone, you know, another question that emerged for us was, you know, how does SARS-CoV-2 compare to other viruses in terms of how fast it mutates? And I'm sorry, I was looking off so if this is related to what Zach already asked. I mean, is there a there's not a set speed or it just happens. Yeah, it's it's it, it's relatively slow. The odd thing is SARS didn't SARS-CoV-2 didn't really mutate until mid 2020. I I I thought sequencing it would be quite boring. And then one mutation occurred and people um, who pointed that out got quite famous that because that mutation became fixed in all subsequent SARS-CoV-2 cases. And then we started to realize that mutations were building up and this whole concept of variants really took off late 2020, early 2021. And then we realized, especially in the UK, that the variants were more um, efficient in their replication and thus their transmission. And then it got really interesting to start sequencing variants. But it wasn't a fast process by any means. You asked about comparing to influenza, which is a bit of an apples to oranges comparison, but influenza does not only in, in, in its own right uh, evolve faster, but it, it, it's a different genome structure. SARS-CoV-2 is just one very long genome, whereas influenza has eight, eight chromosome-like segments to its genome. So those segments, um, when a person or an animal is co-infected with two different um, lineages, they can reassort, it's called, or it's akin to shuffling a deck of cards and dealing out different poker hands. So it has not only the mutational avenue to change, but the, the reassortment avenue. And it, the, we don't see that in SARS-CoV-2 now, even though it's theoretically possible it could recombine with, but it's not as able to because it's not segmented like influenza is. So, so with the mRNA technology that we have with at least two of the vaccines that are approved in the U.S., at least. Um, what can be done with those that technology, the mRNA vaccines, to be able to handle this variant or future variants, especially ones that could potentially be much worse? Yeah. Well, the mRNA vaccines, are they can be just, you know, in essence, reprinted. Uh, and the, ma- the makers would like to argue that they can just reprint it and reformulate it and have it ready, I think Moderna said, by March. Uh, so matter of months, the regulators probably would want to do some and would be wise to do, you know, clinical trials before it's used. So, we're, you know, it's really the vaccine productions, you know, almost immediate. Uh, but, it, you know, I think there's going to be a regulatory uh, period as well. They did start to make reformulations of the mRNA vaccines for alpha and delta, but it turned out the vaccines that they that we had, you know, were already approved or EUA'd at least, emergency youth authorization, were, were effective enough. And so the question is, where do you take on a whole new regulatory pathway versus you have something that's still really good? I mean, we're going to talk about going down in efficiency, I think, in, in um, vaccine effic- efficacy and pardon me, in terms of Omicron and Delta, but they're still wildly good. I mean, a, a flu vaccine in some years is only 30% to 50% effective. And, you know, nobody nobody writes home about that. And so if we go from 96% effective to 75% effective for 
SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, even those directed against wild-type Wuhan virus, when applied to Delta or Omicron, we're still, you know, in the black, so to speak. We're still doing pretty good, you know. So, right. But they would have to if if something happened and you know a variant emerged and you know the current vaccines we have uh, are not working very well. We need to make something needs to change. Obviously, they would need to go back through that clinical trials process again, right? Just like I believe so. I believe that- they should. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there might be regulatory regimes around the world where they don't, but. Okay, but it's still significantly faster than what anything we've had prior to these mRNA vaccines. Like the process is still faster because of the technology that's available to us now. Is that at all possible to anticipate future mutations and create future-proof vaccines? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I think we're doing great as it is, but I think we could look at the number of possibilities for making a stable, you know, spike protein and calculate those structures and, and, and sort of anticipate the function of them. I think the latter part is the former part is easy. We can calculate out our structures. The understanding what they mean is, is a little harder and the understanding what they mean, you know, biochemically is a little harder. And then the understanding what they mean epidemiologically is even harder. So you know, we see this 30% reduction of 36, upwards of 36% reduction of uh, efficiency against current antibodies by Omicron, but we don't know what that means yet, you know, in the real world. So, so I mean, we could, we could make computers run really hard, but it'd be hard to, hard to translate that to the real world. That's a great idea, though. I think it's something we should strive for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that seems like it would be easier if the viruses were progressing uh, incrementally, like you said, but with something like Omicron that pops up out of the blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there are many ways to skin the cat. I mean, there might be a, a very large number of many ways that make an effic- to make an efficient SARS-CoV-2. That, and we have not, until Omicron, thought that way. Now we're, you know, we're thinking that way for the last two weeks. How, how do you... How, how are there multiple ways to skin cats? <laughs> I mean, isn't it? I was wondering where that was coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pull it off. Um, I, I like the idea. Here, um, <laughs> Kendra's not here to defend cat kind. <laughs> Often the metaphor of a landscape is used. Um, and so you have a hilly, imagine a, a landscape of many hills, and the hills are optimal viruses, right? And it's, it's sometimes thought it's hard to go from one hill to another. You can kind of like go up the hill a little bit. You can go alpha up to Delta, up the hill. And then when you're on the top, you're kind of stuck in one evolutionary space, but you got Omicron on this other hill over here. And so it's hard to, hard to imagine being less efficient to get more efficient. But what happens, I think, is that there's a set of contingencies. Certain mutations happen that allow others to happen. And therefore, evolutionarily, SARS-CoV-2 starts climbing a new hill, so to speak. And there may be many hills of efficiency out there of evolutionary peaks. Oh, uh, okay. Can we go back to the white, the, the deer yeah. situation? I mean, when, we, when you learned that it emerged or that it was detected in the um, deer population, what does that mean? Like for the human population and stuff, I mean, we talked about not really going away especially since it's not, doesn't appear to be deadly to that population. But I mean, is it easy for it to jump back to us? 
from them, or do we know? Yeah, yet, we, don't, we don't know. I mean, it's largely dismissed. I mean, the whole notion of zoonosis, I think, in general, is very important. We don't like to think of reverse zoonosis because we're clean and animals are dirty, but <laughs> we're just another kind of animal, right? So we just see. We sometimes give bacteria and viruses to a- animals, and they're not being treated, but by and large, right? So um, the virus can live amongst them and, and evolve with them. And yeah, this is true. Influenza fun- fundamentally comes from birds. We know all these coronaviruses or many, you know, many of the clinically important ones we're familiar with come from bats. And that's the idea of a reservoir that, that the virus is in the wild and ever so often infects people and then we pay attention to it. Uh, that, that will always stick to with me from our first episode that you said the reason why these seem to come from bats is because bats have such great immune systems and nothing kills them. And, so and they fly around. Viruses yeah. bounce around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they fly around. <laughs> what have you been thinking about in terms of this, this virus? What's interesting to you? I really would like to know where it comes from. I mean, and I really think it's probably under-sequencing and how much, I'm wondering how much you know, money and effort we're going to spend to deeply survey viruses. I'm not against it, but, uh, and we, you know, we can do it. It's just a matter of political will. Yeah, I'm wondering where the political will is going to take us in a lot of these things, you know. Um, The president's already said we're not doing lockdowns. I thought that was the state's decision now, but I think this might be, yeah, might be a point where we're going to just decide to live with the pandemic, unfortunately. It does seem that way. It does seem uh, like I looked at cases the other day and was like, wow, this is nearly the highest single day that we have ever had. Yeah. And I, I, it looks like it did three years ago when I walk into Target. Yeah. And it, see, I, I was just talking with uh, a member of my church who is, um, uh, I forget her um, official title. I'm sorry, Amanda. Um, but she's a big wig in the emergency department of the local hospital and um, asked her how things are going. And she said, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Like they're, they've lost like 60% of their staff and the outside world is acting as if nothing is happening inside. And so all these healthcare professionals are like, they're completely burnt out and they've lost their faith in humanity and they're just they're done. And it seems like, all right, so this is the new normal. We're just going to normalize dying. And uh, yeah, so we can't, we can't live with Merry it. Christmas. We, you know, we can't make doctors and nurses very fast. That's a lot of training and it takes the right kind of person. And so maybe that's the response to this. We're just going to live with it because, you know, we, we have to have doctors, nurses, and everybody who makes hospitals run. <laughs> so, um, and imagine all the ancillary effects. Uh, people are not getting their cancer screens, not getting their teeth fixed, not getting their surgeries if the hospital is full, right? Um, healthcare effects are, are going to be tremendous. We have a study here on campus of the adherence to uh, PrEP treatment for HIV, and we've seen that gone down in the, in, um, in, in the COVID period as well. Hmm. Well, I remember when Delta started taking off, you know, we used to live in Louisiana and there was a hospital system down there in in Baton Rouge that talked about um, that the um, chief medical officer actually said that because the numbers were so out of control there 
um, that they talked about that we something along the lines of that they were no longer an efficient system or something along those lines because their numbers they were so overwhelmed that it they were trying to make it clear to people who were unwilling to get vaccinated uh, prior to the emergence of Delta that even things as car accidents and stuff like that that they would not be able to be seen because they were just that overwhelmed um, and trying to send the message home to those who were adamantly opposed to vaccinations that the, the only reason why this is happening because you're not getting vaccinated, right? And so that's what they were trying to bring home. Yeah, pre-COVID, there was already a crisis in rural America. Small hospitals were closing in in, in towns that were not big, near big cities. So. Right. So don't, so that's what don't, get, trying to make don't get hurt in the country, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which was this? I remember when that happened, with the when Delta emerged and it really took off, and I was hearing that, and I just kept looking at you know my wife and just kind of saying that this is the U.S. Like you don't think of stuff like that. So that's not supposed to happen in the United States of America, right? And but as you just said, pre-COVID, rural hospitals were shutting down and medical care and stuff. But everyone always talks about you know we're the greatest and we have all the best medical care and blah blah blah. But then. We're turning people away, like doctors, which I'm I'm aware that that's not the case. But you know, it just was it was tough to hear again to be reminded of the fact that this is not over. Wealthy people and propagandists say that we have the best healthcare system in the world, but right, I I think most folks would disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, but it's just an, an interesting perspective being shared, and to hear again, you know, chief medical officers saying we don't have the ability to care for you right now. Yeah. was a very yeah. eye-opening. So if you want to give your uh, give your local healthcare provider a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa, or whatever they celebrate by getting vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I remember, Dan, you and I were part of a panel, um, and it's still funny to think of this. I think it was like February of 2020, near the end of February, and it was before things really took off. You know? yeah. And so we no lockdowns were in place yet, and Compared to now, very few cases were in the U.S. that we knew of at the time. And we kind of talked about in that panel about, you know, and it, and people were asking about, you know, if this gets out of control here in the U.S., what about lockdowns, all that kind of stuff. And we, we just kind of kept talking about the acceptable level of loss. Like, you know, and then I remember you pulled up a slide talking about the number of flu deaths every year yeah. um, that we were having at the time. And so we just that was considered an acceptable level of loss um, by society, not, you know, indi an individual person, obviously, but it sounds like that may be where some are trying to go. Like, you know, you see some just saying, I'm done. I'm not, you know, this is over for me. Yeah. I don't think it by design. And I don't think those, that's why I showed those slides. I don't, you know, I don't think people really consider flu a deadly disease, but it is if you have the wrong underlying conditions, you know? So, now we've got another one that's, you know, before we, especially before we had the tools, um, there is some bright side. We do have tools now for, we've had, you know, influenza vaccines and antivirals. Now we're getting to the stage where we have, you know, better vaccines than we did for influenza for, you know, for SARS-CoV-2. And there are some new antivirals, um, I think, uh, that, that will probably be some bright side in the gloomy picture we've been, you know, painting that, even unvaccinated people can take a, 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 re a regime of these um, antivirals and lessen their illness. 
okay. from SARS-CoV-2 infection. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Dan. Is there anything else you want to share with us based on what you guys, have, you and your teams, have been studying the past couple of weeks? Um, yeah. I'll send you the. I'll send you the paper. Um, um, you know, one is we 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 predicted that you know even though we surveillance looks Herculean right now that it's not and we we wrote that and you know we predicted time will tell in the clinic but we predict now that vaccines will be less efficient against Omicron than than you know previous variants so we'll see okay and we can link to that in the show notes yeah people. that'd be great all right well thanks Dan I right. appreciate you thanks Zach thanks Come Ian on talking again <laughs>